Uh, it's on the back of your service sheets. Uh, starting at verse 8. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or, the, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We're going to spend a bit of time together now, folks, looking at this commandment that Mark's just read for us. So it's helpful to have it in front of you or if you um, have a Bible with you. Uh, we read from Deuteronomy chapter 5, so sometimes it's good to have that. You can see the context and everything else going around at that time. Um, if this is your first Sunday with us or your first Sunday back with us for a while, we've, we're just uh, into our series through the Ten Commandments, and this is only, only week two. So if you missed last week, it's all right. Uh, you can go online and listen. Uh, podcasts are available through the usual sources, including Spotify and iTunes and all that. Um, gives you a bit of background and a bit of an intro to the whole series. So we're going to dive right in and look at this second commandment. And we saw last week that the Ten Commandments in general are, are very foundational for our understanding of the Old Testament. They're very foundational for our understanding of that specific part of the Old Testament called the law. Um, if you want to understand Jesus and what he said and why he said what he said and why he did what he did, we have to understand the Ten Commandments because he, he assumes you know, uh, that we know what, what's going on and he's part of the, um, uh, the tradition of the Old Testament law. And also, we, we, we saw and started to think last week about how our Western civilization, as we know it, what we experience now, is formed and based on this Judeo-Christian heritage largely summed up and summarized by these Ten Commandments. So when, it, when all is said and done, um, they are pretty important. Although we saw last week as well that a lot of people, an uh, increasing number of people, are, are pretty embarrassed actually about the Ten Commandments. And there's many uh, efforts, if you like, to, to rewrite uh, or reformulate the Ten Commandments into something much more palatable for us as modern Western 21st century people. But yet we saw last week um, that the context of these Ten Commandments is God saving his people bringing them out of slavery in, in, in Egypt, and then establishing through them a new world, a new society. That's what, that's what he was doing. It was grace first and then gratitude. So when it comes to the law of God and all the commandments and, and the things, you shall do this and do this and do this and not do that, do that, we've got to understand that first of all, it starts by reminding us who God is and what he's done and how he has brought his people out of slavery. Then... When he has done that, this is how you should live in light of my grace and what I've done for you. And that's, that's the tone um, that we come to the Ten Commandments. So those who are often embarrassed about the Ten Commandments and want to rewrite them don't see the bigger picture. And it's not hard to do because you just have to go to Deuteronomy 4 and, and read the chapter before to see what God is talking about and what he's been doing. Anyway, uh, the, the subtitle for this, this sermon series you know, is called Ten Words. Ten Commandments, um, but the subtitle is "A People of well, Becoming a People of Love, Justice, and Purpose." Love, justice, and purpose. Because if we listen to the teaching of the Ten Commandments and we realize how they summarize the entire sort of uh, will of God about how we should live in light of His grace to us, 
then we shall, and if we take them seriously and we take them into our hearts, we shall become, as a church, as a community of people, we shall become a people of love and of justice and of purpose. And it's awesome, actually. I didn't plan it like this, but we've got Freedom Sunday coming up in a couple of weeks, and that's just specifically one of the ways that we can become and apply the Ten Commandments, um, becoming a people who are really concerned and deeply passionate about justice. So that's what happens when we take this stuff in and take it seriously. Um, and uh, again, just briefly, we saw last week how, um, you know, we've got to get, first of all, because of the way we've been created and, and the way that God has ordered everything, we have to get our relationship to God sorted first. Uh, that is the primary relationship. That's the primary uh, consideration that the law has when we come to the law of God in the Old Testament. Relate to God right first. And then our ethics will flow out of that. Last week we saw Christopher Hitchens who just thought, well, let's, let's, let's get away, uh, let's do away with the first three commandments because they're just irrelevant nonsense. Ethics, we're all about ethics and how we should live a good life, but we can ditch that stuff about God. But God is saying the exact opposite in the Ten Commandments. He's saying, unless you know me and relate to me as I relate to you and, and, and are in proper relationship with me, there is no hope for love or justice or purpose in the world. You can't have any of those things, says God, unless you are right with me, unless you see me and respond to me and my grace. So ethics don't work. Ultimately, they fall down without a relationship and understanding of God. Okay, so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look and we're going to examine the, the, the commandment itself, first of all. Uh, secondly, we're going to think then about how it applies to us, because we've got to do a bit of work to connect the dots. It's not just as straightforward as you might think. Uh, thirdly, we're going to look at how Jesus is good news when it comes to this commandment. And fourthly, we're going to think about very, very briefly what happens when we live it out. Okay? So first of all, and we're going to spend most of our time on the, let's say the first two points, I think. Um, we'll see how we get on. Uh, we're going to look at the commandments. It's important for us to understand the commandment. I'll read it for you again. Uh, verse 8 of chapter 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, or the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We'll leave it there. Got to understand this carefully. You shall not make a carved image, or in the old King James Version, a graven image. No graven images. What God is saying here is, is no representations to be made of anything in the heavens or on the earth or under the earth in the sea. Right off the bat, just want to put this out of our minds. This is not a prohibition against you drawing a picture of a tree or a bird or making a sculpture. That's not what God is saying here. Why is that? Because some people do take it like that. That's not what he's saying. Carry on. He says, don't make them. And then goes on straight away. Do not bow down to them or serve them. He's saying, don't make an image of anything in the created order. And don't, don't, don't give yourself to it. Don't pay homage to it. Don't, don't, don't respect it. Why, why would anyone do this? Why would anyone in the Bible times ever do something like that? Because for, in our mindset, that sounds just weird and odd. And, and, and why is this even one of the commandments? Well, in the ancient Near East, around the time when the, the book of uh, Deuteronomy was being given and written down, uh, the, the religious landscape was, of course, very, very different in some ways, to our own today. Um, uh, very much dominated by what we've now come to describe as polytheism. Many gods, that's what it means. Various gods represented 
by different tribes. We're talking about tribes, people here. We're not talking about vast, you know, developed cities as we would currently understand it, but just different tribes living in different geographic areas all across the ancient Near East. And each tribe would have at least one god, if not multiple gods, that they would relate to. And often uh, in, their, in their culture, in their art, their gods would be de- de- depicted as animals or human figures or, or a mixture of both. We saw last week how uh, the Egyptians had you know, many, many gods and goddesses, and there's one goddess that is um, depicted as a you know, female body with a frog's head or, or a god uh, who, who is p- depicted with a male body and a, and a cow's head. And it happened in Egypt, it happened in Canaan, you know, the promised land where they were going, it happened in Persia. That's the context. And, and so when, we, when we're looking at this and thinking about how this applies to us, we've got to avoid um, historic or cultural short-sightedness. When we, when we look at these primitive peoples, sure they were primitive, sure it was like a pre-technological society we're talking about. Um, but what they were doing was making representations of their gods. Uh, they, they were making these, these, these uh, constructions and these, this art as a way to worship their god, as a way to connect with their god or, or, or bow down and serve their god. If you bow down and serve uh, the image that you have made, in, in effect you are bowing down and serving the god or goddess that you cannot see with your own eyes. They knew that that was just a depiction. It was just a... Uh, a piece of wood. They weren't actually worshipping it, but they thought they could access their god or goddess or gods through those pictures or images. That's why they did it. Everyone was doing it. That is the context into which God spoke to his ancient people of Israel. So what he's saying in the second commandment is don't try to depict me. I cannot be depicted. I cannot be represented in any form, no matter how gilded with gold, no matter how wonderful, how beautiful, no matter how well-intentioned you are. I cannot be depicted. I'm not like a bird. I'm not like a frog. I'm not like a human. Do not try and make an image out of what you think I'm like because I don't have a form. You heard a voice. You heard me speak to you, but you cannot see me. So don't try. That's what's being ruled out in the second commandment. In the first commandment, it was a prohibition about worshipping the wrong God. You know, he says, I'm the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. That's what the first commandment was all about. The second commandment is worshipping God in the wrong way. You see the difference? Because the problem is this, God, Yahweh, God of the Bible, is way bigger He's way more holy. He's way more transcendent. He's totally other than anything that we can have in the created order. He's above all that. God, it says, is spirit. And so nothing comes close to God in the entire created order. So we can't pick anything, no matter how wonderful and beautiful, and it depicts God. It doesn't do justice to who he is. It's always going to shrink him down. It's always going to miss the target. God cannot be contained, right? He cannot be... Minimized, he cannot be reduced to a picture or an image, no matter how gorgeous and wonderful it happens to be. See, this is all about worshiping the right God, but in the wrong way. That's what the second commandment's all about. And according to God, it is equally dangerous as worshiping the wrong God altogether. In fact, we see in the history of Israel, as the Old Testament uh, winds on, this is an ongoing problem for Israel throughout the law books throughout the books of the kings and the, the prophets and the leaders of Israel. 
constantly worshipping Yahweh in the wrong way. Thought that they could borrow ideas and insights from other cultures surrounding them. Thought they could bring that into their own religion and connect with God in fresh and innovative and creative new ideas. And yet God constantly calls them back, constantly tells them to put their idols away, put their images on a bonfire, burn them, get rid of them, because they will destroy my relationship with you and your relationship with me. But they just didn't get it, and eventually he sent them off into exile because they just couldn't help themselves. So that's the second commandment. The first is about worshipping the wrong God. The second is worshipping the right God, but in the wrong way. Okay? Before we come though, to think about us in our 21st century local church context, we've got to address a couple of things that, that maybe give a bit of a bad taste in your mouth when it comes to reading uh, this particular commandment. Uh, the first one is the second half of verse 9. Uh, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is why you should not make an image of me, because I'm a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. When you hear the word jealousy, and when you, when you think of a jealous person, we're not generally thinking about a positive thing, are we? A good virtue. We don't love jealous people. We don't think, oh, great, here's a jealous person in my office, or here's a jealous person in my family. You know, That's not what we think of. When, when someone who's uh, jealous maybe is, is portrayed in EastEnders or on some movie, uh, we, it's the jealousy that drives them to do bad things and say bad things, right? To, to badmouth people in, in the workplace or to gossip or to backstab. Even children are jealous of one another's possessions. It causes children most often to, to grab toys and to snatch. It might drive, jealousy might drive people to, to theft or to harming person or property. That's the kind of thing we think of when it comes to jealousy. It is not a virtue. Is that what God is saying about himself when we come to the second commandment? I submit to you that it is not. And here's why. The kind of jealousy that God is talking about here, that he is a jealous God. In fact, elsewhere in the scripture, it says, my name is jealous. He is proud to stand behind the term in the name jealous. The kind of jealousy we see here is a good form of jealousy because it is wrapped up in love. Love. We think love and jealousy are perhaps, you know, opposites or at least very far apart. But for God, they are totally united, totally linked. And here's why. Imagine two people madly, wildly in love with one another. You know, when you're in love and, and you look at your watch and you realize that suddenly many hours have gone by because you're so, you know, let's just say you're so wrapped up in the other person. You want that other person's love. You, you want their time. You don't want to share their affections or their attention with anyone else. And you will defend them and their love and protect them with the best of your abilities. And this is especially shown and cherished in marriage. And so God is a jealous God because he's a loving God and he steps into marriage with his people and he won't share their love. He is jealous for their affections. He won't share that with anything else. He won't be satisfied if you give your love to other things, to other forms. Not ultimately, I'm not saying it's wrong to love other people, but ultimately, above all things, God says, I want you, I want your heart, I want you alone. That's how God feels about his people. And he's a jealous lover. He's, I love you. 
That's what he's saying to his people. And I, I can't bear it if you don't love me in return. God has this jealous, holy, passionate love for his people. And so can you imagine then what that does to his heart effectively when they start bringing images and idols, absorbing religion or religious ideas from other systems? God is a jealous God, and that is a good thing because he is passionately in love with his people. I'm a jealous God. That's why you shouldn't make idols and images of me. Don't even try. But here's a second thing that often sticks in our throat. Carries on and says, God is a jealous God, and this is how he demonstrates it. Visiting the iniquity, that is the sin, of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Wow. What sort of a loving God is that? Taking out for a second the fact that it's wrong according to God to make an image and make an idol and worship it and try and worship God through that. Okay, fine. We can, we can, we can kind of accept that maybe. Okay. But visiting your children to the third and fourth generations because of the sins of something that happened way up the line? How is that fair? How is that a loving God? Is that the kind of God you want to follow? And again, because of things like this, Without really thinking it through, people reject the Ten Commandments. They want rid of that. It's just embarrassing. Ugh, it's horrible. And rightly so. But one thing, one generation seems to uh, fall short. It seems unfair that multiple generations afterwards have to be held to account. But again, let's just try and think for a second. We're, we're, we're maybe coming in from our own unique perspective in history and in culture and in geography. What God is saying here is that the, the, the wandering, the unfaithfulness of one generation has an impact throughout subsequent generations. If you wander away from the faith, he's saying, they're going to wander away from the faith. And there's a penalty for your wandering. There'll be a penalty for their wandering too, but it's on you. It's because you are playing fast and loose with God. See, how you worship God will impact your children, for better or worse, and your children's children and their children. That's what God is saying. I'll hold you accountable for your sin, and they're just going to wander away just like you. That's what he's saying. God is a passionate God. And he wants his people to enjoy him and be passionate towards him. And yet if we refuse to pass that on, if we are lackluster in our attitudes towards God, if we are confusing before our children about what we believe and what's really important to mom and dad, let's say, if we start adopting dubious practices in our worship or uh, enjoying other things that are not of God, then that will impact generations to come. Just the way it is. That's the way that we are wired up. But in contrast, let's not forget this. Yes, there will be problems for generations down the line if you screw this up, says God. But I will promise, I will show my steadfast love to thousands or in other words, in the Hebrew, thousands of generations to those who love me 
and keep my commandments. Yes, there is a problem if you mess this up. Yes, it will affect subsequent generations. But in contrast, if you show me love, if you keep my commandments, I will show you steadfast, rock-solid, everlasting love to thousands of generations. So when it comes to God, yes, there is judgment. Yes, there is wrath. But blessing outweighs the penalty, right? Grace always wins when it comes to God. So we've seen the commandment, and we've seen how it's different from the first commandment. But let's start thinking a little bit now about how that applies to us. Because the issue, as we've seen, is worshipping the right God, so to speak, but in the wrong way. And the question I want to try and put before you this morning is, is this possible for us today? Because Israel saw the nations around them. They saw the images and representations. They thought, oh, these are novel ideas for us to connect to Yahweh, to our God. These are good ways for us to establish our closeness with with Yahweh. And so Israel thought to themselves, we'll have a bit of that. We'll we'll adopt these practices into our worship. The the technical term for this is syncretism, which is borrowing parts of pagan worship and transplanting it across into your own worship forms. For whatever reason, Israel are not satisfied in God. They're not not getting what they want. They're not getting anywhere they want to be. So they think to themselves, let's add more in. Let's let's turn up the heat. Let's bring in the images. Let's bring in the insights from other cultures around us. So my question, our question right now is, as a church, are we at risk of borrowing worship techniques from the unbelieving world around us? You bet we are. Can we as a people, start worshipping that which was created rather than the creator? Of course we can. This is much as much a risk for us today as it was for old Israel back in the Old Testament times. And here's three ways I submit to you um, that we in the contemporary church can mimic old Israel and break the second commandment. Three ways, just three ways. There's plenty of other ways we can do it. Um, let's face it, Uh, two arise from outside the church and one comes from inside the church. But here's three ways we can break the second commandment. By adopting worship techniques from the unbelieving world. The first is entertainment. When, When we look at what our people and our society spend their money on and what they give their time to, what they prioritize, most likely we will see what it is they worship. Okay? And in our society, uh, we believe and, and, and flesh out in so many different ways that the individual is king. The individual is the, the highest source of authority. What I, what I think and feel is the most important thing, the most important thing that dictates everything else that we see in the world. That's, that's how we have become conditioned. And so uh, re- recreation, re- entertainment become the basic human rights in some ways. Uh, and uh, it's all about me and how I feel and, and making myself feel better and enjoying life and that's, there's nothing wrong with that um, but that assumption trumps all else okay it's, it's a form of worship let's face it and we can bring that assumption into the church and we, we can say as a church you know people deserve to be entertained and so that bleeds into our practice as, as a church and there, let's face, you may have been to them maybe you're from them I've certainly been to some churches uh, are out there that try to entertain people they try and win them uh, to the church or they try and keep them in the church by entertaining them by selling them experiences uh, by everything is just chipper uh, and upbeat and lighthearted just coming along for a good time there's nothing of the holiness of God in any of their meetings there's nothing of the seriousness of worship entertainment bleeds into the church 
And let's face it, the church can't really compete with how entertaining and awesome stuff is out there. So why do we even try? But anyway, that's one of my suggestions, one of the ways that the church can break the second commandment. Boring entertainment. Second, therapy. Is a similar kind of idea. Uh, we are very much part of a, what you could describe as a therapeutic society with the individual as king. Uh, when life is not working out as we plan, when I'm not feeling or, or being awesome, uh, feeling as awesome as I should be, then we want the suffering to go, of course. It's natural. Uh, and so we turn to an endless cycle of, of popular psychology and of feel-good moralism and medication, anything that we can do to take away the hurt and the pain and the suffering. And uh, we spend, as a people, enormous amounts of time and energy on removing any unpleasant feelings or any form of suffering whatsoever. And so we look as a church at, at what's going on out in the world and we think we should match this. And so uh, many churches can provide a constant stream of moral lessons and unqualified psychology in order to help people feel better. And the problem is that that kind of attitude from the church is devoid of power because it, it aims to get to the feelings and it produces no lasting change and it ends up working against what it attempts to do. Entertainment can bleed in. Therapy attitude can bleed in. The third way that we can mix the created with the creator in the church is through tradition. Tradition, this is the one that rises up within the church. Again, it affects many churches within our city. may even affect our church. We're not immune from any of these things, by the way. You know, there are uh, certain ways of doing church that become a habit and become set in stone, if you like, just like the Ten Commandments, the type of music that's sung, the instruments that are used, the style of the service, how you do communion and baptism, how people should look and sound and speak, the fixtures and the fittings, hymn books and PowerPoint, rituals and routines. These things can become etched in stone so that they are unassailable. You can't change them because that's the way it's always been since the days of Moses and the Ten Commandments. That's how we act. And it becomes less about the form and style of our worship service and it becomes a thing we cling to. It becomes a thing that we go to for assurance. In short, the lines become blurred between the created and the creator. And we start worshipping our worship rather than God himself. It can happen to any church. And you know that when you try and change it or challenge it in some way or other. When people start feeling threatened and hostile. Or when you start feeling threatened or hostile. That's when you know there's a problem. Now look folks, just in case... You misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with connecting with people from outside and, and you know, some form of, of uh, connection in terms of entertainment. There's nothing wrong with helping people in their struggles, rather like the therapeutic mindset. There is nothing wrong with developing God-honoring rhythms and routines as we worship together in community. Those things are all fine and good, but the issue is, what I'm trying to get to, is that when those things become dominant or all-controlling, that they take more of our passions and our resources than the message of Jesus himself, that's when we know there's a problem. That's when we are starting to break the second commandment. Just think for a second, maybe on more personal terms. 
I wonder if one of these elements is more important to you than God himself. I wonder if you feel and sense in yourself that you leave church feeling, oh, that was all a bit heavy. That was all a bit serious. Could it be that you have absorbed the values of entertainment from the world? Maybe you come away from church consistently and you think, oh, it didn't do anything for me. I wasn't really feeling it. Could it be that you have absorbed some of the mindset of the, the therapeutic culture that we live in? Maybe you leave church or, or any, any worship gathering annoyed that things weren't done as you think they should have been done, that you can't worship God through the music or the format. That maybe tradition is more important to you. Perhaps for you it's something even more personal than that. Maybe in some ways you've constructed an image of God in your mind, that your God that you believe in is a God of love and forgiveness, but he's certainly not a God of anger and justice and judgment. Maybe, maybe your knowledge and understanding of God hasn't changed much since you were younger, since you were a child. Maybe you've sort of arrived at a view of God, but it hasn't deepened over the years as you've gone on in your relationship with, with Jesus. Has he become more awesome to you? Has he become more stunning to you? More beautiful as time goes on? Or are you at kind of the same stage in your mind and in your heart that you were 10 years ago or longer? Any attempt to form an image or um, you know, a uh, representation is, 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 is trying to manage and control God through a thousand different ways. Effectively, we rob him of his glory. And as Israel found out, bringing images and creations in to help us worship God is the first step towards abandoning God altogether. And it's a, a very dangerous path. So let's just think now. We've thought about the command. We've thought about some of the ways it can apply to us in the local church. Let's ask ourselves now, why does it happen? Why is so God so concerned about it? And how can Jesus help us? Well, look down with me again at verse 8. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven. Don't try and represent God like this. But you see those two phrases, image and likeness. Can you think of where that may have come from in the Bible? Where have we heard that before in the grand story of the Bible? Image, likeness. You know, way back at the beginning in Genesis 1, verse 26, God speaks and he says, let us make mankind in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the livestock of all the earth and everything creeping along the ground. Have you heard that before? Human beings, you and me, were made in the image and likeness of God. And the point was that they were to represent God. They were to reflect and demonstrate his goodness by their words and actions. And they were to live in this vast community of love and justice and purpose that shines the goodness of God to the rest of creation. That's what human beings should have been doing. But then the fall happened, sin entered the world, and our ability to be the image and likeness of God perfectly was, was corrupted. And the effect is this, rather than being the image and likeness of God to the rest of creation, we took creation 
and made it into the image and likeness of God because we failed to do it. Can you see that? We got the order horribly messed up. God created us to image and, and to uh, demonstrate him to the rest of creation. But because of sin, we use creation to make images and to worship gods of our own choosing. Can you see how messed up, how radical the fall was? How it twists everything on its head and our purposes as a people just upside down. Can you see how we've made it a mess of the entire thing? And we continue to do that in a million different ways right down to today. We're supposed to know and enjoy God for who he is, and instead we create our own gods that turn around and enslave us and crush us to the ground. That's how bad this is. Is there any wonder, according to the, uh, the great theologian Mick Jagger, we can't get no satisfaction? Any wonder we can't know peace in this life because we're too busy chasing all these stupid images that we've made? Is it any wonder that we prioritize entertainment or therapy or tradition even in our churches above God himself? Because that's what we do. It's hardwired into us. It's been passed down the generations since the fall. But folks, here's the good news. Here is the good news. There is a way out. And that's what I'm here to declare to you this morning. This messed up order can be restored once again. It can be put right. Our hearts and minds can be remade into the image of God. And here's how. Here's how. Jesus, he was the only human being who lived that order right and correct. He was the perfect image. He was the image of God, the likeness of God. He was stunning. He was startling. He bucked the trend that all of humanity had been living in right up until he came on the scene. He lived in the right order. Colossians 1.15 said that he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. We as fallen people are too busy going around making our own images and likenesses of God and worshipping them. Jesus came. He was the perfect image and likeness of God to restore us in our mess and our brokenness and all the fallout from our stupidity. Here's the gospel, folks. We have messed up. We cannot stop following wrong, sinful, and harmful pathways to get what we think we need. God is a jealous God. He deserves our affections, and his loving anger is aroused against us. But here's the good news. Jesus lived as the greatest human being, but he died as if he was the worst. He died in horror and shame on the cross because you and I have broken the second commandment and all the rest. See, on the cross, while Jesus was paying for your screw-ups and your sins and your offences, Jesus was also displaying the image of God. Do you know that? Because God was saying right there on the cross, I am just, I am jealous for your love. I am raging against you and your unfaithfulness. Yet look right here at the cross. Look at what I am doing to win you back to me. Look at the extent that I will go to save you. And Jesus went willingly to the cross as the true image of God to restore the image of God in you. It's the gospel. So how do you 
get that? How does that work out? The author of Hebrews goes on to say, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. That's what we've got to do, folks, to receive the benefits of what is going on here in the gospel. The Apostle Paul puts it like this slightly differently. He says, we all with unveiled faces, you know, clear faces, beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus, we are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. The Apostle John writes elsewhere, when we look at him, we shall be like him. For we will see him as he is. All of these three verses taken together say to us that the more we look at Jesus, the more we enjoy him, the more we put our faith in him and our trust in him and comprehend what he has done for us on the cross and his resurrection and his life, the more we will be transformed to be like him. The image of the true person, the true man or woman of God, will be more like him the more we look at him. That's what he's saying. You'll be transformed. When you see what he did for you, for your sin and your law-breaking, your innermost heart will be given to him. You will want to please him and love him and live for him. Your behaviors will change when you are being restored in the image of God. When that happens, you'll stop, progressively, you'll stop forming images out of anything and everything around you so you may bow down to them and worship them. You will more accurately display God and his goodness and his love and his justice to the world around you when you behold Jesus. That's what it's saying here. So we thought of the command. We've thought about how it could apply to us in the local church and beyond. We've thought about how Jesus comes in and rescues us from our misery and our sin. Let's just think briefly about how this might apply then to us uh, before we close out. Two ways um, how this could apply to us in the church. Number one, we'll worship by the book. And number two, we're a community on mission. We'll worship by the book. Because this commandment is all about using unauthorized ways to worship God. But the good news is, folks, he has given us plenty of ways that we can and should worship him as we gather together as the church and as we scatter as the church. God has expressly laid down things for us to be doing when we get together. He said, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we'll do that as a church. We're going to worship by the book. He says, when you come together, enjoy the Lord's Supper, have the communion. That's one of the ways that you can worship me through that. He says, when you come together, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to the exhortation and to the teaching. That's what we're doing right now because that's what he's told us to do. He says, when you come together, confess your sins to one another. And that's what we do every Sunday. You see, we worship by the book because there are wrong ways to worship God, but there are right, wonderful life-building ways to worship God. And we just want to take that seriously as a church. Does that mean that we have to do the same thing and go through the same routine every week without thinking? Absolutely not. Because within all the stuff that God gives us, there is a great space and variety for us to be creative and innovative about how we use those gifts and how we receive them. But all of that is to take place within the framework of how God says what we are to do and how we are to worship him. And one of the great things um, about looking back in history is there's a rich heritage of those who have gone before us that we can learn from and how they have worshipped God and how they have applied these, these scriptures to their own lives and churches. 
And the more we do that, the more powerfully and clearly we can be an image of God to the rest of the world, right? So we'll worship by the book in response to this commandment. Number two, we're going to be a community on mission. Let's not forget that these commandments are not just you for you to enjoy and, and live out personally. They're for us as a group of people, and they're for us to demonstrate before the watching world that we can enjoy God with every facet of life as a community centered around Christ and his gospel. We're a community on mission. That's what God had in mind when he gave the Ten Commandments. You know, when we see the Ten Commandments through the lens of the gospel, as we will do in this Uh, this sermon series, we shall become, as we said at the beginning, a people of love and of justice and of purpose. Can you imagine what a growing, vibrant, Jesus-loving community would look like built with you guys? What would that look like to the outside world? What would that look like to the people of East Belfast within a, 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 a one-mile radius from where we are stood right now? Sat. Can you imagine what that would look like to the unbelieving world that is deeply searching for relationship, for love, for friendship, for grace? How attractive would that be? Because that is the entire focus, everybody, on the Ten Commandments. It's about showing the nations the goodness of God so that they may come to him and enjoy him. And that is our prayer here at Foundation as we go through these next few weeks. Will you stand with me and we'll pray together? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... Uh, The law of the Old Testament, Lord, is not there to enslave us and bind us. It is there so that we might have life. We thank you that Jesus has perfectly obeyed the law so that when we mess up, we can come to you for grace and pardon and forgiveness because Jesus not only lived the life that we could not live, but he died the death that we should have died. And in you there is life and forgiveness. Help us, Lord, drive us more to you in love and obedience because you are our great heavenly father. You have a jealous, passionate love, protective love for us. Teach us, Lord. There is some hard teachings here. Help us to receive them. Lord, anything that is of you and that is landing heavy on us, Lord, may we listen, may you give us power to receive anything that is not of you, Lord. Let it just fall away. We just want to hear from you, Lord Jesus. And so, Father, would you continue to speak Holy Spirit, continue to work as we uh, respond to you through, through song, as we come to the Lord's table and we, we receive again afresh the good news of Jesus as we chew on that bread and drink that wine that just points us back again to Jesus and to what he's going to do in the future. It's in his name we pray and for his glory. Amen.